Yeah, it's pretty nice. We sort of this this area that we're in is it's like an extension of the Appalachians, only without the height. So, so we have low rocky hills with forest and that kind of thing. So it makes for some nice riding. That was the voice of Nick Adams. And this is Ted Kettler and the Motorcycle Men Podcast. This is episode 270. It's Motorcycle Men. In this segment of Chapters, we have author and motorcycle traveler Nick Adams, and he joins us to give us a preview of Chapter 10 from Beyond the Coffee Shop, riding 1970s Moto Guzzi motorcycles in northern Canada. The Motorcycle Men Podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. They're offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. To learn more, go to scorpionusa.com. And Shinko Tires. Shinko has a tire to suit your needs and riding style without breaking your bank account. So go to shinkotireusa.com and make sure you tell them that the Motorcycle Men sent you. And wild-ass seats. You can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle longer with a cushion from wild-ass seats. So if you're tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, go to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. And, of course, Tobacco Motorware. For the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there is only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorware. Visit them at tobaccomotorware.com, and our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use that coupon code Motomen, your safety is worth it. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well, Ted. Thanks. Very good. good to things see you are again. yes. Things are a little chilly up there in the north. They're a little bit cool. Yeah, it's certainly not riding weather. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose it could be if you feel like braving the cold. You got snow on the ground. We do in some places. Yeah, there's uh, there's ice patches. That's the problem. Oh, okay. Snow yeah. on the banks, snow on the sides of the road is fine, but uh, once you've got ice patches, it's just not worth it. Yeah, you don't mind the snow, though. Not generally, as long as it's not under my wheels. Yeah, this is true. Um, okay, for those who are not familiar with who you are, tell us um, who you are, what you've done, and your motorcycle self briefly. Okay, I'm uh, a 69-year-old former Englishman, as I guess most of your listeners can probably tell. I still haven't managed to lose my accent. Uh, what I spent accent? Most of my <laughs> I spent most of my career as an archaeologist. I'm sort of phasing that out now just because I'm lazy. And uh, I've moved over into writing and uh, doing a little sound recording, audio books. And uh, the rest of the time, I just spend riding my bikes. Excellent. What kind of bike are you riding now? Uh, well, I've got five in the garage at the moment. Only, but, uh, only five. My, only five, yeah. Three Motor Goodsies, uh, an old Suzuki Cavalcade, and a 1960 British Panther. Wow, nice. So now in your first book, uh, which we're talking about tonight, Beyond the Coffee Shop, you chronicled your motorcycle adventures. Now give us a brief synopsis of your book. Well, that was my first book. Um, really what happened was I, I had started writing short articles for a motorcycle magazine in the UK and posting trip reports on Adventure Rider, uh, the Adventure Rider forum online. 
and realized I'd started to compile quite a bit of stuff. So I thought, well, if I throw in a little bit of uh, my early history with bikes and then how I got to where I am now, then uh, it might be of interest to people. Um, most of the, uh, the stories are about riding in Northern Canada, uh, mostly on my 1972 Motor Um and uh, the adventures I have along the way. All right. Now, what kind of challenges did you face uh, since you ride the vintage Motoguzis? Well, I think a lot of people are terrified of breakdowns. So they tend to buy the, the latest or most recent bike um, in the hope that they're never going to have any trouble. That may or may not be true. Uh, the way I look at it is, if you go being prepared for trouble, then it's not really an issue. And actually what I've found is when things do go wrong, they're usually things you can either fix at the side of the road or the people you encounter are so helpful and friendly that it makes the journey much more interesting than it would have been otherwise. So there are advantages to breaking down. <laughs> I suppose there could be. Now, what was your favorite part in this particular uh, book and chapter we're going to review? What was your favorite part uh, of these rides? Uh, I think any of my rides, what I really enjoy is is the uh, um, just moving through the forest, preferably on gravel roads, the sound of the bike, the sound of the, the wind in, the, in your ears and in the trees, um, just passing through the landscape on long, empty roads. On this particular ride, things went a little awry. So uh, I'm not sure there was a favorite part of this one. Um, <laughs> Maybe the success of getting home. <laughs> that, that, that might have been the most important bit. All right. Now, was it your intention from the very beginning to make a book out of your adventures? Or was it one of these things where uh, the adventure happened and you started to make a book? Or did you have the idea, well, let me go ahead and make a book out of this? That was basically it. Yeah, I'd, I, I'd compiled enough stuff, enough short stories about various trips that I thought, well, I can put those together and maybe people will be interested. Um, and fortunately, it seems to have been that's the case. Um, I had some positive feedback from some of the articles that I'd written. And I thought, well, obviously, there's enough people out there that find this stuff interesting. Um, and perhaps because I ride in places that most people aren't able to ride, right. um, they can sort of get some vicarious pleasure out of it. This is true. I, I know I got plenty of pleasure out of it. Now, did you did the uh, the print book first, and then you did the audio book. Was was that an easy decision to make to do that? Uh, the print book was long before the audio book. I'd I'd written a, another four or five books before I ever thought of doing the audio book. Uh, but I could see that audio books were becoming popular, and um, and I enjoyed doing that kind of thing too. You know, I can, without being too conceited, like, well, I guess it is too conceited, but I like the sound of my own voice. Um, I don't mind other people hearing it. And actually, actually, what happened, what what really inspired me to get going was um, I had my small crew in my van. We were sitting, waiting for the rain to stop, and it was going to rain for a while. And some of the guys knew that I was writing or putting the book together. They said, well, why don't you read some to us? So I did. And they all said, you know, you should put this out as an audio book. So I thought, okay, well, why not? 
Oh, there you go. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about the recording process and the decision to narrate the book yourself. Did you go to a studio or did you do this in your own place? Oh, I'm far too cheap to get somebody else to do it. Uh, <laughs> I have a little storage room that I've hung with old curtains. I, I know that you can see behind me, uh, but absorb the outside sound. You know, things like uh, the furnace and such like tend to get picked up by the microphone if you're not careful. I have my laptop, I have a USB microphone that's plugged into the laptop, and I, I use uh, Audacity software, the freeware package for editing, and pretty much that's it. I just sit down with the book and close to, close to the microphone and just start reading. Oh, wow. So how long did it take from start to finish to create the audio, your first audiobook, uh, Beyond the Coffee Shop? I honestly can't think how long it took total, but uh, say a 20-minute chapter usually takes about an hour to an hour and a half to edit afterwards. Because whenever you're reading, it doesn't matter how good you are, and I'm sure this is the same for any professional narrators, they get to a certain point and they'll stumble a word or mispronounce something. And what you do is you just go back to the beginning of the sentence, start again until it's right, and then once you finish the chapter, you then go back and cut out all the bits that aren't any good. It's just like cut and paste from a, a Word document, except it's in sound. Yeah. D did you enjoy doing all that? Yep. Yeah. I've actually, uh, beyond the motorcycle books, I've actually done uh, a number of uh, historical journals as well. Wow. That's very interesting. So why don't you tell our listeners what they are about to hear in this chapter? Okay, this chapter describes a rather chaotic attempt to ride one of the most isolated roads in uh, eastern Canada. The Trans-Tiger Road uh, basically cuts across northeastern Quebec. And I think at the end of the road, you're as far as you can be from an occupied place anywhere in North America. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I didn't get there. And this chapter is about why I didn't get there. Um, the journey starts off well, the weather's great, I'm making good progress. I get to the turnoff onto the Trans-Tiger Road, which is already a long way north in Quebec. And, well, I won't tell you anymore because it'll spoil the narrative. But let's just say when disaster strikes, it's amazing how things can work out for the best. And it's astonishing what you can achieve with a bit of JB Weld <laughs> and a few bungee cords. <laughs> I'm getting the impression that this is a common theme through some of the other books as well. A little bit. Uh, it's a bit of a chronicle of disasters. <laughs> you know, things tend to go wrong. But again, if as long as you don't uh, see them as problems, as long as you just see it as part of the adventure, yeah. then uh, then it's a lot of fun. All right. Before we move on to uh, previewing the chapter, uh, tell us about your other books that you ha currently have out. Give us the titles. Oh, uh, The Road to Misanabe is the second one. Um, Beyond the Bypass, that was one I put together after my heart surgery, is the third. Or was that the fourth? Oh, gosh, I'm get losing track now. Uh, there's one I wrote about riding to the Yukon on my old 72 Eldorado called Eldorado to the Klondike. And the most recent one is Riding in the Time of the Plague. Oh, there you go. And all all of them are both, or all, they're all available in paperback or as digital downloads and as audiobooks through Amazon or Audible. 
All right, Nick. Well, thank you very much. We're going to have you back on to preview the other books in uh, the months to come. And I look forward to speaking with you again. That'll be wonderful. Thanks very much, Ted. Thank you, sir. Chapter 10. The James Bay Road Debacle. This is a sorry tale of personal incompetence, good fortune, endurance, isolation, and the kindness of strangers. Let me set the scene. This time I decided it was time to tackle the Trans-Tiger Road, a 600-plus kilometer gravel road into the center of northern Quebec. 40-year-old bike, aged rider, thousands of kilometers of virtually unsurfaced empty road in the middle of bear, wolf, and black fly-infested wilderness. What could possibly go wrong? The Trans-Tiger Road branches east from the James Bay Road about 80 kilometers south of Radisson. But to get there, you first have to ride most of the James Bay Road. I won't bore you with the technical details here, but let's just say, it's a long way. My journey started just north of Kingston, Ontario, and went through Perth and Calabogie, crossing the Ottawa River into Quebec at Portage du Fort, just north of Renfrew. From there, it's a pleasant ride through the wooded hills and lakes of the Pontiac District to Manawaki. As always, at the start of one of these journeys, I'm tuned into the bike, listening for any rattles or knocks which might spell trouble. I'd adjusted the valves the night before I left, and if the ticking from the upper end of the motor sounded a trifle louder than usual, I put it down to the generous clearances stipulated in the manual. Old Gootsies have loud valves. That's just the way it is when your jugs are hanging out in the air on either side of the gas tank. I like to hear them while I'm riding like the constant chirping of crickets. As long as you can hear that mechanical cacophony, all is right in the world. What I didn't know at the time was that the slightly heightened chirping was caused by a loose generator mount, adding its own vibratory message to the chorus. Beyond Manawaki, you join Quebec Highway 117 for the best part of 250 kilometers until the town of Val d'Or. This is the most scenic portion of the journey, the road winds between granite hills, past massive lakes and moose pasture. Although it's a well-traveled, nicely paved route, there are few services, and one starts to get a sense of the vastness of Quebec. The Eldorado was running well, maintaining a steady speed at a comfortable 3,500 RPM. Other than stopping occasionally to add fuel or check the oil, it was just a case of droning along in the sunshine. I like droning. It becomes a meditative state where the lizard brain takes over the mundane stuff of keeping the bike between the gravel shoulder and the center line, while the other parts go off to some other place. Don't ask me what I think about on long rides. Everything and nothing. I spent the first night in Amos, settling down in a motel with a few beers and some nasty orange corn chips, the kind that old married guys like to indulge themselves with when they're out of reach of their more health-conscious spouses. It's about 200 kilometers between Amos and Matogamy, and the start of the James Bay Road. I've ridden that stretch before, but for some reason this time it seemed interminable and I just wasn't reaching my Zen state. The kilometer marker posts seemed to crawl by, and time itself seemed to have slowed down. You would think the 200 kilometers of road flanked by forest extending endlessly to either side would give one a sense of being out there but the real ride doesn't start until you're past metogamy. 
The little town is about a kilometer off the main road, but bypass it at your peril. The next fuel pump, and very little else, is 381 kilometers to the north. Needless to say, I topped off with gas, checked my oil, then rode the six kilometers to the checkpoint where you register your trip. From this point on, there are no services, only a handful of often uninhabited First Nations cabins, usually tucked in the forest just off the road. I'd arrive a perverse pleasure heading out onto an empty road. I'm not sure why. I'm conscious of the dangers. Misjudge a single corner or fall asleep in the saddle, and you could fly off into the bush or swamp, leaving virtually no trace that you'd gone that way. You and your bike could simply never be found. Stop, and within a few moments hordes of blackflies descend. It's not wolves or bears you have to fear out here. It's the blackflies that'll tear you to pieces. The emergency phone installations only serve to remind you just how remote it is. It can be hours between vehicles. The landscape has a subtle charm. There are no outstanding features. Indeed, featureless is one of its defining characteristics. At first it just seems as though you're riding through an endless tunnel of trees. But the further north you go, the trees get smaller and the bones of the landscape become more apparent. Here and there, a bit of bedrock or an area of bog will be visible between the stunted spruce. Occasionally you get a glimpse of the true immensity of the landscape. It seems to roll on forever. The road is a thin line across this enormous terrain. Apart from what was in my mostly full tank, I was carrying an extra 20 litres of fuel. Contrary to expectations, the weight of the gas on the rear rack has almost no perceptible effect on the Gutsi's razor-sharp handling characteristics. It wallowed through the corners a fraction more, perhaps, but not enough to be worrisome. So when I reached where the Trans-Tiger Road meets the James Bay Road at mid-afternoon, I had more than enough gas to make the first leg of that journey. But I dithered. Was it a premonition, or just cowardice? I rode up the road for about two hundred metres. The gravel was loose and dry, but neither better nor worse than roads I've ridden hundreds of kilometres on before. I turned around and decided to have one more night of luxury in a motel in Radisson, before setting out in earnest. Twenty kilometres later, the El Dorado was dead at the side of the road, out of cell range, with oil gushing from a broken oil line. I was stranded about sixty kilometres south of Radisson. Pushing the bike was out of the question so I set about preparing myself. First things first, I rooted my bug net out of my tank bag. The little bleeders, and I use that term quite accurately, had already descended and were starting to rip holes in my flesh. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure of encountering blackflies, I do not exaggerate. They land, bite a little piece of flesh, invariably drawing blood, leaving their nasty toxins in the wound. Individually, they're a minor irritation, but they descend in the thousands. My tank bag contained all the portable stuff, such as my cameras, phone, and wallet, and I barely pulled it off the bike when I heard a vehicle approaching. The instant my thumb was in the air, the driver jammed on the brakes. I didn't catch the gentleman's name. Let's call him Pierre. But Pierre had instantly read the signals, and, well, you just can't go past someone in distress on these roads. Within moments, I was in the cab, negotiating a mutually intelligible language, 
and we were back up to Pierre's normal cruising speed of 140 kph. We settled on English, since my French only extends to a few words, whereas, despite his protestations to the contrary, Pierre's English was fully functional. I could tell it was going to be a terrifying journey in either official language. One thing you have to understand about the James Bay Road is the frost heaves. It was well built 30 years ago, but has received little attention since. Every so often, very often, there are enormous frost heaves which extend right across the road and rise abruptly up to six inches or more from the surrounding pavement. Ironically, they're relatively easy to manage on a bike, but transport trucks and, as I was about to find out, pickup trucks are thrown around vigorously. And of course the heaves always seem to be worst on the bends, especially when Pierre's truck was already almost on two wheels and he was fiddling with his darn cell phone trying to find some reception. He must have been in control, but there were plenty of times I imagined us barrel-rolling into the muskeg as the truck shook like a dog. By the time we reached the edge of Radisson, Pierre had found a signal, called the local garage, and we'd been instructed to call CAA, the Canadian Automobile Association, who would then call them back and authorize a tow truck. I'd barely finished talking to CAA as we pulled into the garage. It doesn't take long to cover 60 kilometers when there's zero traffic and a maniac at the wheel. The folks at the garage were equally helpful. Within a few minutes, I'd met my driver, let's call him Etienne, pulled myself into the cab of the flatbed and was heading back up the road. I'd been worried about leaving my bike at the side of the road, but I needn't have. It was untouched on our return. Etienne and I loaded the bike, strapping it down with some monster straps. If I'd thought the journey in Pierre's truck had been bumpy, it was nothing compared to the shaking and pounding we endured in the tow truck. Fortunately, the bike didn't move an inch. It was as if it was welded to the bed. Once I checked into the motel, I set about stripping the bike. If there's one thing I'm reasonably smart about, it's making sure I have all the tools necessary to do most of the stuff on the road. I know which wrenches I need for which part of the disassembly, and have become quite quick at it. With the tank and seat removed, the problem was obvious. The generator had been able to vibrate enough that A. the front stay had snapped, and B. the mounting bracket had been touching the oil line where it passes through a hole in the bracket. It had partially worn through the line, but more importantly, in its vibration against it, it had caused the pipe to crack. Here's the confession part. I knew when I installed the alternator, replacing the original generator, that I'd done a lousy job of securing the main bolts that hold the bracket to the motor. Over the years, the thread had become worn and was subject to loosening. The same, as you remember, had happened on the Trans-Labrador trip. I just hadn't done a proper permanent fix. Mea culpa. Will I never learn that half measures don't work? Now, what to do about the split pipe? There's no Gutsy dealer in Radisson. I know. What about J.B. Weld? As Pierre had humorously informed me, Radisson doesn't have a Walmart, a home hardware, a McDonald's, or much of anything else for that matter. It's a Hydro-Quebec company town with limited services and facilities. Imagine my shock, then, when I found a hardware section in the general store, and there, hanging on the panel, was J.B. Weld. I overcame my natural parsimony when I saw that the asking price was fifteen ninety nine, with my unfounded conviction that here indeed could be the solution to my dilemma. 
Never mind that I've never once managed to do a successful JB Weld repair to anything. I guess I'm just serially optimistic. This time, I counsel myself, I'll actually follow the instructions on the package and do it right. The alternatives didn't even bear considering. Back at the motel, I cleaned the oil from the fractured line by dunking it in the gas container on the back of the bike. I gave it a moment to dry off, then went inside. By carefully reading the instructions, I learned that multiple thin coats are best, and that curing time could be accelerated with heat. It was 9pm when I applied the first coat, then hung it below the bathroom light fixture to cure. I applied a second coat at 3am, giving it a bit of encouragement with a hairdryer before hanging it up again. The metal pipe was encouragingly warm when I checked it in the morning, and the JB Weld I'd applied had become dry and was no longer tacky. Still, not wanting to rush anything, I went for breakfast, where my pathetic attempts to order oeufs and jambon were interpreted as eggs with jam on, until we got the language thing sorted out again. I'd noticed that the garage carried a few bits of automotive hardware, so I thought I'd see what I could substitute for the broken front bracket. I also needed some oil to replace the stuff I'd spilled all over my pristine engine cases. The fellow behind the counter, I didn't get his name, so let's call him Jacques, said that he didn't have anything that would work, but perhaps his mechanic could make a replica. It turned out that his mechanic was Etienne, the flatbed driver, who was also his dad. I love the way small towns work. It took Etienne less than half an hour to remanufacture the bracket, and I walked out of there clutching my new Gutsy part and three litres of 2050. Life is good. Back at the motel, the motelier, what do you actually call someone that runs a motel, said that there was no need for me to rush the bike or to vacate the room. She wasn't in any hurry. I double-checked the oil line and carefully reassembled everything before gingerly starting the bike. My elder has a lovely slow and regular idle, so I let it burble away while I looked for any signs of leakage. Almost immediately, oil started pouring out, not from the fix, but from the banjo bolt on the right cylinder head which I'd forgotten to tighten properly. Okay, let's try again. This time the bike started, with no signs of oil escaping from unwarranted locations. Even the worn-out alternator belt was doing its job. I left it to idle while I assembled my gear and put my tools away, so that all the metal parts could get nice and warm. Still no leaks. Could this be possible? I was packed and heading out of town by midday. I expected to feel the hot oil on my feet and legs at any moment. A kilometre out of town I stopped and had a good look. So far, so good. No leaking or spurting fluids. As time went by, my speed and confidence gradually increased. I passed the spot where I'd been stranded, then pulled to a stop at the junction of the Trans-Tiger Road. Was I daft? No, not this time. To head down 600 kilometres of unserviced gravel road, with a bike whose vital fluids were held in with epoxy metal and whose alternator belt was hanging on by a thread, was simply asking for trouble. I headed south. It's 620 kilometres from Radisson to Matogamy. To my astonishment, I made it to Matogamy that evening without further trouble. I checked in to the motel, celebrated with half a dozen Rickards Dark and the obligatory Doritos. 
I was up and on the road before six the next morning. From Metogamy to home is quite a haul. For starters, there's the 200 kilometers between Metogamy and Amos. Then add to that the total distance of my first day, so a total of 866 kilometers. Whether it's canoeing, hiking, or bike riding, I always find that by the third day, I'm in the groove. My mind has begun to shut out the bum soreness that long distances inevitably create. My neck and hand muscles have just about given up bothering to scream about being held in one position for so long. I was definitely in the groove coming south through Lavarandre Park. So much so that I completely missed the turn off to Manawaki and had travelled an extra 30 kilometres through Montlaurier before I noticed that I no longer recognised where I was. Rather than face the rather grotesque prospect of driving through Gatineau, formerly Hull, and Ottawa, I opted to retrace my steps until I hit a road which would link me up with my original route. Damn, an extra 60 kilometres added to my day through sheer inattentiveness. I should also mention that all was not exactly peachy with the Eldorado. The remanufactured stay that Etienne had made had fractured in exactly the same spot as the original, so I was in a constant state of worry that the bracket might start eating its way through the oil line again. To prevent that from happening, I now had the alternator clamped down with a rat's nest of nylon webbing and zip ties. It wasn't pretty, but at least it kept the critical parts from destroying themselves. Back in Ontario, safely across the Ottawa River, I stopped briefly in Calabogie to empty my remaining 10-litre jug into the gas tank and check my oil. As I was crouched next to the bike in a public park, a fellow on a Harley saw me, stopped, turned around, and came to see whether I needed assistance. I thanked him for stopping, and after a brief chat, during which he looked increasingly disturbed at the condition of my bike, he rode away. I think he may have been even more disturbed when I blasted past him a few kilometres later. He was out for a nice evening ride. I was hurrying home, and had the bit between my teeth. The final chapter in this minuscule four-day saga occurred within a few kilometres of home. I'd been tailing a jeep along the road south from Westport. He wasn't going quite fast enough for my taste. There were few suitable opportunities to pass, and something about the way he was driving, some intangible, really annoyed me. Once I get the chance, I'll show him, I thought. Finally, just past Lobra Lake, I was able to gun by him, only to have the bike suddenly die. Despite all the oil line and alternator troubles, the old Eldorado had plugged along flawlessly, never missing a beat during over 3,000 kilometers of steady flogging, with daytime temperatures reaching 30 degrees. Now, she just quit. Almost precisely as my friend Norm arrived in the other direction on his Suzuki Bergman scooter. Norm and I chatted for a couple of seconds, and then I tried the starter. The old girl just fired up as though nothing had ever been the problem and continued to run perfectly the rest of the way home. Personally, I think she was chiding me for being a show-off. It's as if she was saying, No matter what, I'll get you home. But not if you behave like an ass. Thank you for joining me and Nick here on the Motorcycle Men Podcast. This has been Chapters with Nick Adams and Chapter 10 of Beyond the Coffee Shop. Links to Nick's books will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Men website. 
Motorcycle Man Podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. So to learn more, go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. And the Gold Star Riding Foundation, helping families of fallen soldiers. If you would like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, go to goldstarride.org. Don't forget to go over to MotorcycleMen.us to learn more about the podcast. And, of course, go over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel where you can see those Ted Shed and Ride with Ted videos. Things are changing, so catch on quick. For the rest of the Motorcycle Men team, thanks for listening. And remember, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Ride safe, kids. <laughs>